0: Hello, everyone. I'm Christy Risk, Senior Editor at GenomeWeb, and I'll be your moderator for today. The title of today's webinar is Case Study Genetic Testing Lab Sees 25 Fold Scale Up with New Informatics System, and our sponsor is Kyogen. Our panelists today are Dr. William Kearns, founder of Advigenics, and Dr. Rupert Yip, Director of Product Management at Kyogen. Dr. Kearns, please go ahead.
1: Hello, everybody. Um, It's my privilege to be speaking to everyone today from Rockville, Maryland, and what I'd like to talk to you about is our experience with the Kyogen system and their bioinformatics system. So the the title of my talk is, is it pathogenic or non-pathogenic, and that is the question, and that's something that has challenged all of us for many years and will continue to somewhat in the future. So I did find, found the lab. I am president and chief scientific officer. I'm also an associate professor of genetics at Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions. And I feel very strongly that advancing genetics technology is a very important role and something we all have to take very seriously in the future and how one can apply it to the general population. So, again, seize the power of genetic knowledge, get answers, and take action. Some of the types of testing that Avigenics does is we do diagnostic single-gene testing. So if someone has a clinical diagnosis, segregating in their family, and one wants to get a better understanding of prognosis and assisting the clinician in Um, medical management, many times one really has to have the specific gene mutation that is pathogenic, and that's one type of test that Avigenics does perform. Another type of testing that we've been involved in for many years is reproductive health testing. Um, My initial lab going back to 2002 was in pre-implantation genetics uh, where we're testing embryos um, from IVF centers for both chromosome abnormalities and single gene disorders. And that's what the image is on the left-hand corner of the screen showing how um, embryologists can actually remove cells out of the Travectoderm part of a blastocyst and test them, laboratories can test them for genetic abnormalities prior to transfer. We can also look at the diagram on the right-hand side of the pregnant mother. Um, We can do cell-free DNA and we can also do Uh, normal prenatal testing. Cancer testing is really revolutionizing therapy for cancer patients worldwide. And we provide a very comprehensive list of panels, types of panels, for inherited cancer gene tests. We can also identify uh, circulating tumor cells and cell-free DNA and if one looks at the cancers with inherited mutations, I mean, there are many people that feel that 15 to 20% or more of cancers are inherited from one parent or the other. And one can do testing on inherited cancer genes and it can help in the prognosis of future therapy. And in my own case, I have two genes that are associated with the increased risk of colon cancer, and I'm not surprised because my mother had colon cancer. And it's the same kind of story with BRCA mutations where women can have um, MRIs and different things like that. So it can help in future personalized medicine for these patients. Whole genome and whole clinical exome sequencing, you know, again, is a bit of a different Scenario in a sense. I mean, clinical exomes, we do quite a number of these where we sequence the entire genome and specifically we're looking for the pathogenic and non pathogenic mutations that are associated with that specific phenotype. Whole genome sequencing is kind of a different area. I mean, if you think of clinical exomes, that's only about 100 percent of our data. Um, Whole genome sequence, we still report out the clinical exome, but we store that data in a cloud for whole genomes, and we have that for future analysis if we want to, you know, as future come about, and we may be able to identify certain specific mutations that may play a role in specific phenotypes. And what about personalized medicine? You know, we've all heard of different companies offering things like this, and we do it too. I mean, what is our predisposition for certain types of cancer, heart disorders, and so much more? I don't mean um, things that are predictive. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about does one have a specific mutation or likely pathogenic mutation that that may um, give you a greater risk of having some future disease. And how does one particularly look at that? And how does one particularly um, guide potential treatment for that? And, um, you know, I, I faced this many times. I, I gave a consult with a, with a patient a few months back, and she was actually a doctor from Texas. This was within an IVF setting. And they had a single gene disorder segregating in their family. And one of the questions that I always get asked is, well, what other things can you test for? So I thought, OK, let's go into this personalized medicine type of thing. Let's see what she what she thought about it. And WashU, and I think it was University of Michigan, did a survey about a year and a half, two years ago, on 100 couples that had children over three years of age. And they asked them, how many of you would do personalized medicine? to test for genes which are lethal or high morbidity, no late onset, in your children, and over 80% said they would do it. When I gave this information to this particular doctor in Texas, she said to me, well, that's a little too much information. I don't want to know that much. So those are kind of the controversies that are out there about doing this type of thing. Pharmacogenomics is... um, Kind of a, it's actually been around for quite some time, but it, it's a type of type of information that um, is still not fully utilized. And, and it's where one is testing different genes to see how, how you metabolize food and drugs, particularly the drug interactions, and, and what, what drug you should use and you shouldn't use because they're interacting with something else. And it does help you in determining your body's response to diet, exercise, and so much more. So here's the real key in genetic testing. I mean, I've been around long enough to never say never and never say ever, that as we dig deeper into our genome, we find many things of unknown unknown clinical significance. And what do we do with those things of unknown clinical significance? Do we not look at them? Do we try to understand what they mean? What do we do? And I think that's the real challenge in genomics today. I'm not trying to make this an advertisement, but we use all types of genetic sequencers, and um, we feel that they, they all give a very good answer. <coughs> Excuse me. I think the most important fact out of any type of analysis is what do you do with all this data? I mean, if you think about the um, the secondary analysis, so the sequencing comes off. I'm now talking about next generation now. When all the sequence information comes off in one of those at secondary analysis, you see that there's a DNA variant compared to the reference genome. But then, what? How does one determine whether it's pathogenic or non-pathogenic? So, how do how does one do an annotation to come up with that decision? So, we we spent a couple of years trying to determine what is the best process to do this. How can we best do this. Um, should we build it ourselves with bioinformatics people, or should we buy it? And I looked into lots of different um, vendors. I looked into lots of different bioinformaticians and software engineers and how they were proposing different things to build, and et cetera, et cetera. And we made a decision that we were going to buy it, primarily because the the, the different bioinformatic platforms are updated on such a regular basis. And we wanted to make sure that we had that current updates. And if any of you are involved in a university setting, and I'm sure you are, you know that how difficult it is when you already spend a million dollars or so trying to build a bioinformatics process, um, it's not easy to get them to agree to do it again, or to update it, or to build something more. Uh, I'm not saying that they're inferior. I don't mean it that way. I'm just saying that there's a lot of po- a lot of challenges and things like that that you've got to go through. And, and Also in a private company, there's a lot of expenses involved in that, and if you spend a lot of money to to build it yourself, are we getting the most current information that's available out there for all the bioinformatics platforms? So we did a lot of due diligence and looking at vendors. I would say we probably looked at 15 or so. Um, We did in-depth analysis comparing all these different. We ran multiple samples with confirmed pathogenic mutations on things which we have fully validated uh, samples confirmed by Sanger sequencing, and we blindly compared all the DNA annotations. And and we found some very interesting things. Um, Basically, we found that they don't all match, and that was kind of troubling, quite frankly. And um, So we kept looking at why could that be, and then you get into different scenarios about Actually, um, how how actually is the genome, the bioinformatics processing done, and, and how is the parallelization done, and things like that. So, you know, how did we make a decision on what vendor we should really use? Um, I, I, again, I, I want to emphasize this. I mean, you know, I, I come from a world in, in genetics that you know, when one does validations in clinical diagnostics labs, you, you know, you do a lot of things as far as precision analysis, sensitivity analysis, um, blah, 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 and and when that, what basically what that says, you run multiple samples multiple times on the same day, triplicate, and then you do it over several days, and, you know, you blindly look at the results, and if they don't match, it's not a, It's not really a validated sample. And that's what we were finding when we were looking at some of these different samples. And we couldn't figure out, was it really our sequencing that was part of the issue potentially? Was it the different platforms? That was part of the issue. Uh, Putting it all together, it was something that we had to come up with some type of solution that made me comfortable to sign out clinical reports uh, when we could see complete reproducibility in the samples analyzed. So, what we did and what we concluded about all of that is that we would go with Kyogen. Um, and, you know, I'm very happy with that decision and it's worked out quite well for us. We've been using them for probably about a year now. And again, we're very, very pleased with how the system works. Um, I look at it as we really need intelligent bioinformatics. We wanted a fully automated turnkey analytic that gave us a real end-to-end solution and tried to make genomics simplified. And what I mean by that is, you know, you sequence things, you get your secondary analysis, are there differences compared to the reference genome, but then the annotation, is it really pathogenic or non-pathogenic? And we had to make sure that we were right, Um, particularly when we're doing things for active cancer. We, We do solid tumor testing and things like that also. And the reports that come out in our bioinformatics pipeline not only tell you what the DNA variant is that's classified as pathogenic or non pathogenic, but it also gives you the current um, treatment that is validated and is in using as that tri- type of cancer and that specific DNA change. And it further gives you all the information as far as where the current clinical trials are ongoing, their location, telephone number, and things like that. So we we required unsurpassed performance. We wanted highly accurate analytics. And we wanted this to be 100% reproducible and deterministic. That's not to say that sometimes there are not some errors in sequencing or some errors in the bioinformatics pipeline, but usually they're all interrelated in the system that we have here. And one can can dig deeper and figure out exactly what, what is going on. But that's a very important part for us. We want highly accurate analytics with 100% reproducible and deterministic results. So what it gives us the ability to do is we can look at germlines, we can look at somatic cell, compare term, tumor versus normal, we can do trios, we can do transcriptomics, and we can. We have a custom pipeline integration that makes it very efficient for our needs. Um, We needed it to be something where we can visualize it. I like to see something. I like to see it. I like to be able to dig deeper into it. If I want to look into the back or the backbone of the bioinformatics pipeline to give me some comfort level about what I'm looking at. I want it real time. I wanted it to be automatic upload to the cloud. Interpretation reporting is terribly important. And quite frankly, after we spent all the time working with the bioinformatics pipeline, then the real bottleneck was interpretation and reporting because it would come out, you know, the data would would come up the sequencers and we would upload it into the cloud, and then we would go into um, QCI and, and click it, and then we would go through each process and determine, okay, this is saying it's pathogenic. We would look at the evidence, pros and cons of pathogenicity, we looked at biochemical evidence, we would look at the references, and then we would click, you know, save this assessment, save the bibliographer, et cetera, et cetera. You'd go through each variant like that, and then you would get to the end and you do a further classification of each pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant and add the ACMG guidelines. Then you click it again and you come up with review the report, and then you sign the report, and then you, you are ready to transmit this to the ordering. Clinic. Uh, this took time. You know, it took probably 15 minutes on average for each sample, and that's not easy when you have a very busy clinical lab. Um, so, interpretation reporting is very, very important. So, again, the Ingenuity Vary Analysis by Kaijin is what we use. I, I use the acronym QCI. ClinVar versus QCI, I think that that's um, a real interesting challenge. I and mean, in ClinVar there's many mistakes, and um, one has to be very careful about what is determined to be pathogenic or likely pathogenic within ClinVar, because they're all not the same. They're all not um, 100% pathogenic or likely pathogenic. What Kyogen has is the HGMD database and all the other databases that they have. I think it's 15 or 20 databases the total. They pull all these down from multiple uh, resources around the world, and it gives you all the information, interpretation. Um, Rupert can get into the more specifics of that after I finish, and one can discuss how all that is done. But what happens basically behind the scene, it gives me all this information in front of us and then we can make a decision what again whether it's pathogenic or likely pathogenic they they have worldwide scientists who do updates on all the annotations from different references that are that are in PubMed and different medical literatures which I think is fantastic because many times in databases like ClinVar is it's outdated so that's a very very important thing and again it's updated on a monthly basis and I get updates um, if there's a patient sample that that had a variant of unknown clinical significance. Let's say it's a um, an active cancer patient, and later that month it turns out that there's a reference that shows some good references supporting evidence that shows that it is really pathogenic, then I will get an update, and then a, an updated report will be sent to the clinic. So our experience is, you know, it's an ease of use with preset filters, so we can identify all the filters. We set them. We have the previously identified pathogenic mutations and automation. So everything gets uploaded directly to the cloud. Secondary analysis is done. Um, what I call tertiary analysis, I and mean, then it comes back to the different directors and say, okay, you can sign off on the report. Again, prior to the automation of this, we were getting a, a potentially about 15 minutes Maybe I'm slow. That's what it took me. Others may have been doing it a whole lot faster per report. Um, But now, with the automation, one director can do about 1,000 samples per month, and it's not overwhelming. Um, I think this is the key. Basically, what we have done is we've been able to increase our productivity by using the QCI automated bioinformatics platform by over 35 to 40%, and it helps us a great deal. Thank you. Questions? All right, I guess Rupert, now it's your turn.
0: Thank you, Dr. Kearns. Um, as a reminder to webinar participants, if you have a question, please type it into the Q&A box in the control panel. We will conduct the Q&A portion of the webinar after the presentations have concluded. Dr. Yip, uh, next up, uh, you are uh, your presentation. Please go ahead.
2: Thank you. Um, it's my pleasure to be able to talk to you guys a bit about uh, our offering and uh, to thank Dr. Kearns for talking about his experiences with uh, QCI. At Kaijin, here, um, when we say we're a bioinformatics company, I like to say that we're a very different kind of bioinformatics company. Unlike a typical bioinformatics company, we're really in the business of selling knowledge. and. This has to do with what Dr. Kern talked about: intelligent reporting and, or intelligent interpretation. We firmly believe that while algorithms are important, uh, the knowledge behind uh, to back those algorithms is even more important. And so, one of the creed that we have is that we firmly believe that you can only pr- uh, provide the best care to your patients when you have the best knowledge available. And to that. Um, we've been working very diligently for almost uh, two decades now to to aggregate the world's knowledge uh, into our knowledge base. And it's a combination of both private data sources as well as public data sources. Now, public data sources everyone has access to, things like ClinVar, ClinGen, Cosmic, TCGA, uh, all of that. But we also bring um, uh, and partner with academic institutions and various testing labs to bring knowledge that is not found in the public domain. Things like HGMD or CentoMD, which is a database of over 200,000 exome and genome patients that are sequenced by uh, CentoGene to bring a lot of these variants that have never been published um, in in the open literature as part of the knowledge to bring to bear to interpretation. We actually have an army of MDs and PhDs who read on the average of around two to 4,000 articles a month, um, and we update that on a very frequent basis, uh, and we curate um, uh, close to you know, 3,000 new findings uh, a day. And so this information now powers um, the algorithms, uh, not just bioinformatics algorithms, but also society guidelines such as the ACMG, uh, guidelines and 28 criteria, uh, as well as the AMP-ASCO-CAP guidelines for oncology interpretation. So our knowledge consists of um, knowledge that's built, purposely built for hereditary disease and somatic oncology, as well as from um, leading reference databases such as HCMD and CentoMD. And with that, we now have uh, over 13 million knowledge-based uh, findings. And the finding is essentially a nugget of knowledge that is gleaned from a scientific article. A scientific article might have several nuggets of knowledge, and an example of a nugget of knowledge might be how gene A upregulates gene B by X factor. Um, and so we, we aggregate all these findings, and so uh, gene A and gene B are two nodes in the knowledge base, and the relationship is the you know, upregulation, and then the, the magnitude of that would be like two or three threefold. And you can imagine a knowledge base that's built with all these nodes and all these relationships, and you ultimately come up with a giant neural net-like structure that is uh, constantly evolving as new knowledge is put into this knowledge base, and that is what our knowledge base is. We pull data from over 30,000 uh, integrated databases across 20,000 disease classes from over 30,000 publications. In addition, our platform has seen over 700,000 human patient samples. So imagine the knowledge of having seen over 700,000 patients, and that's what I mean by the knowledge that we bring to bear with the interpretation. As as an example of the breadth of coverage of our knowledge, um, we have knowledge of variants in over 18,000 genes in our knowledge base. Compare that to ClinVar, which has uh, a little over 5200, and when you compare ClinVar and HGMD, you're still missing out on 50% of the uh, knowledge of genes uh, for which we have uh, known variants in. Compare that to the number of variants in the knowledge base. Again, more than half of the variants in our knowledge base is unique to uh, the knowledge base compared to just ClinVar and HGMD. So folks who are using just ClinVar alone, uh, number one, as Dr. Kern said, that the, the information is outdated or, or incorrect, but number two, it's it's incomplete when you compare um, that to the knowledge base. And so this is why a lot of the times when people are uh, interpreting variants and they get variants of unknown significance is because they lack some of the knowledge that we offer. And as an example, we actually benchmark um, a, a bunch of variants, in this case uh, lynch Lynch. lynch syndrome variants from Ivar. We took about 180 Lynch syndrome variants, and how, and basically asked the question, well, how would QCI uh, interpret these variants, given the knowledge that it has? And what we found was, of 180 variants, we were able to reduce the number of BUSs by 27%, simply because of the amount of knowledge that we bring to bear. And so imagine a lab that is now able to decrease um, the amount of BUSs that they have to report out or, or um, have to interpret. And we have other data looking at cardiovascular and other uh, disease classes as well, and we see similar types of um, reductions in um, variants of unknown significance. We will actually be publishing um, a peer-reviewed article later this year or early next year that benchmarks Across uh, several uh, disease classes, such as BRCA, cardiovascular, to see how we compare to a panel of experts in those diseases and how they, they uh, do the interpretation. Uh, I'm not going to sort of steal the thunder, but um, our, our level of consistency with an expert panel is really, really high. So uh, do look forward to uh, do look forward to seeing that publication when it comes to that. Uh, we may have a preview of that. Um, at the upcoming uh, ASHG meeting. So with that, I'll wrap it up and be happy to take any questions.
0: Great. Thank you, Dr. Yip. Um, As a reminder to webinar participants, if you have a question, please type it into the Q&A box in the control panel. And before we begin the Q&A, we'd like to to ask attendees to give us feedback by taking our exit survey after the webinar. Um, all right, our first question um, is actually for both of you. Uh, what algorithms does QCI use to do the secondary analysis, um, the variant calling? Um, uh, doctor, you, you might want to take that one first.
2: Sure. And so our algorithm is based on a um, map reader algorithm. It's a proprietary algorithm to Chiagen. So um, as you know, Chiagen had a something called CLC Bio. And this is an algorithm that was originally developed by CLC Bio. This algorithm has actually uh, gone through the FDA Precision Challenge and various other um, challenge forms and have performed very, very well. Um, it also has algorithms that um, remove any <laughs> Mendelian conflicts in, uh, in the case of TRIO analysis. And so there's a lot of um, sort of um, clever techniques that it uses to decipher and remove the noise in the data. Um so you know, we've compared and there's a lot of benchmarking studies that are available online that you can take a look at how we compare to say BWA, G A T K.
0: And Dr. Clemens, would you like to add anything?
1: Um I, I would say more of a of a personal um experience in my our personal experience with that. I mean Dr. you have talked about their proprietary information, so I don't know anything more than that. But what I do know is when we did secondary analysis different ways and then tried to, and we saw what the pathogenic or likely pathogenic result was compared to doing it, the secondary analysis through cryogen and then determining it, that's where we started to really see some of our differences. So the way that they do this um, specialized algorithm to determine DNA variant at that stage is is really important.
0: Great, thank you. Um, Dr. Kearns, how long does it take for you to perform DNA annotation and uh, signage of a final report?
1: I'm doing it the manual way. I'm slow. It takes me ten to fifteen minutes. If we do it the automated way, it I can do we can do about a thousand samples a month because it all comes in, it's all based upon, it really all determines upon our um, the number of variants that we've already classified as pathogenic and non-pathogenic that's in our database. So what the system sees that we've already classified it as pathogenic and non-pathogenic, either myself or some of the other directors, then it automatically calls it that way. References are already updated and accumulated in the, in the final report, and it, the signature is applied. It's only the, the only things I have to look at now are the things which are actually a new DNA change for classification or pathogenic or not pathogenic, and that only takes a few minutes.
0: Um, Rupert, which RefSeq is Kyogen using for variant calling? And when a missense mutation is not identified, how does QCI show the classification of unpublished variants?
2: Sure. Um, I'll take the first part of the question to be you know, which reference are we using? And we're using um, both RefSeq and Ensembl. Um, that way, you know, Americas and Europe. I know they use two different ones commonly, and we support both, rest c and ensemble. Um, when it comes to uh, identifying missense mutations, um, so we use a, a variety of algorithms. We use um, uh, at least two splicing algorithms, Max and Scan, and I forgot one other to identify missense to identify splicing events. But if there are variants that have no published variants behind it, then um, obviously we, we go to the usual data sources such as ClinVar, Cosmic, OMEN, and all of that, and if they don't have it. We now scour our own knowledge base to see if the CentoMD, HGMD, um, and the 700,000 other patients that have gone through our system, has that been seen before? And if that fails and we still don't see any of the variants, then we fall back to Um, established um, algorithms uh, or in silico predictors to see the effect of uh, translation uh, on the protein with that particular mutation. And this is a a typical uh, workflow that uh, the ACMG uh, specifies that uh, there are a couple of uh, criteria in ACMG that does allow for the use of uh, uh, in silico predictors to help classify, and so we fall To that, but we feel that because of our knowledge of uh, looking for for, uh, both published and unpublished uh, variants, that we probably provide the best chance for any clinician to identify a variant with um, actual clinical evidence.
1: Can can I add something to that, too? Absolutely. In In the information that comes out, they also now have just added something as an alert which shows. Conflicting evidence, in silico evidence versus biochemical evidence, which I find very useful. Um, It's very easy to see and you don't miss it. And um, I really like that.
0: Great, thank you. Um, Rupert, as a follow up to that, um, as a clarification, which version of RefSeq do you use?
2: Yeah, so we support HG19 and HG20.
0: Okay, great. And do you have access to patient data in QCI?
2: So um we don’t um, have access and, and the and our users don’t have access to other patients uh, clinical data. What we do provide is um, anonymized allele frequencies. So if um, if you wanted to see if, uh, you know how what’s the rarity of a particular variant, we can provide that information based on published information and pub private sources such as CentoMD and our 700,000 patient cohort. Um, We also uh, have partnered with certain databases, and I want to highlight the CentoMD database where they do have information that includes patient data. And so when you ask the question, has anyone else out there ever seen this mutation? If so, how did, uh, what was the associated phenotype, and how did they end up classifying it? And CentoMD is really the only database we have that provides that information, and we bring that information into QCI. So um, you do get to have those questions answered. Um, In the future, we probably will look, we are looking currently into how uh, the community of users will be able to provide some of that anonymized information of genotypes, phenotypes, and classification. Uh, but we are very cognizant of um, patient privacy information uh, and so are treading carefully about how we want to share that information.
0: Great, Uh, the next question, um, I guess, could go to both of you. Um, How often does it happen that you come across uh, novel variants? Um, And Dr. Kearns, would you like to take that one first?
1: You know, I'm, I'm not sure the answer to that. I mean, I wish I had the other directors Around right now, so I could ask them how many they see. We see it maybe I don't know three or four percent of the time, but that's that's really a guess. I I think I defer to, to Dr. Yip on that one.
0: Rupert?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd have to take a look at to look at the overall statistics about the um, frequency and rate at which novel variants are appearing in our ever-growing cohort, um, but. The, the rate that Dr. Kearns is quoting is uh, sounds about right to me, and and in the ballpark. Um, but we do have those analytics, and that's a question I, I guess I've never really looked into, but it would be interesting to look into that.
1: Yeah, yeah I really would. It's a good question.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Kearns, what do you find are your major obstacles? Um. <laughs> I think our major i, I
1: think now there in, as far as doing the bioinformatics there there aren't major obstacles. I'm very comfortable with it i It took time to get to this point because you know looking at all the different vendors and coming back and trying to decide which one is best I mean a lot of different people will say you know this is they have that advantage versus this this other company's advantage and blah blah blah. Um, it just took me time to really be comfortable and trusting, and I'm a very conservative geneticist, so, you know, trust but verify, and it took me some while to do that because that's just my nature. But once everything was set up, the thing that really became overwhelming to me was processing how, how long it took to do the samples because our volume was increasing so rapidly, and that's where their um, automation system has really been a lifesaver for us interesting So that was yeah. the real challenge.
2: Yeah, and I'd add to that, there's actually a um, poster that was presented at last year's ASHG by Council, which is a a large um, genetic testing lab specializing in um, carrier screening. And they showed data where um, using QCI, they were able to um, reduce the amount of curation time by around 75 to 80% while at the same time maintaining a level of consistency that was equal to their old manual curation efforts.
0: And
2: yeah, they, I would, they actually I benchmarked.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I saw that. And I, I would agree with that. And, and I would even say a little further, I think in some cases it's even more accurate, because sometimes we all miss things when we're doing it manually.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Um, Rupert, is the platform able to handle analysis of multiple cases uh, for research to make associations between genotype and phenotype um, and to obtain frequencies of variance uh, in a cohort?
2: Yeah, so um, currently it can support a, tr- a trio and quad analysis. If you're looking at um, Large cohort analysis, that's not really what QCI is designed to do. QCI is really designed as a clinical interpretation supporting, decision supporting tool, Um, not really a research tool. If if you're interested in research tool, we do have other products for it, such as uh, IVA, ingenuity variant analysis. But QCI is really designed for singleton, uh, doublet, uh, triplet, or a a quad type of uh, analysis.
0: Um, And we have another question about patient data in QCI. Um, Without that patient data, can you still do the correlation between genotype and phenotype in QCI, or does the user have to have access to CentoMD in order to to have this information?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, genotype you'll always have because we require the upload of your variant information, uh, typically in the form of a variant call file, (VCF file, so that you can upload and bring genotype information. With regards to phenotype, um, we do um, have fields that allow you to enter phenotype information. They're purely optional. If you don't enter any phenotype information, the knowledge base will then assign a default phenotype. And that default phenotype um, is based on uh, the most, I don't want to use the word popular, but it's the one with the most findings, The, the phenotype that's associated with that particular type uh, would be the one that comes up the it would be the genotype that has a finding that is the most prevalent in the literature that we curate. Now obviously the more if you provide the phenotype then the the classification can be more refined. Uh, for example, if you had a particular uh, genotype and out of hundred findings, um, ninety of them are associated with um, polycystic kidney disease, but your particular patient presents with um, cardiovascular uh, disorder, then you can actually enter cardiovascular as the phenotype, and then we would recalculate the ACMG classification upon this new classification. And this is something that's unique to the platform. We don't pre-compute our ACMG classifications. Always compute on the fly based on the information you provide to us. Um, and so that way you can be assured that when we make um, when we present the evidence for a particular classification, it is relevant to the genotype and the phenotype that you observed in your patient. Um, and this is, you know, like I said, unique because we we do this on the fly, and we do this because we have access to all this knowledge.
0: Great, thank you. Um, Rupert, does the platform use artificial intelligence to do the interpretation?
2: That's a good question. Uh, Artificial intelligence is uh, a big buzzword uh, nowadays. Um, We do look at artificial intelligence, various uh, AI technologies to see how um, it can help with the interpretation. Uh, To date, we've not identified a particular AI technology that provides sufficient um, confidence for clinicians to to use in the interpretation. Uh, and partly that's because um, there's, there's a dearth of good ground truth data set to train a lot of the AI algorithms. The other thing with AI is uh, oftentimes uh, because it's artificial intelligence, they come up with a classification for which we don't really know how they come, came up with that. Um, And we spoke to a lot of customers and clinicians about this, and they say, you know, I'd like to know how you came up with that classification. And AI doesn't really reveal that information because it's, it's its own intelligence. Our approach is we say, well, here's how we came up with the classification you know, um, out of the ACMG uh, 20 criteria, it triggered these 18, and here is the evidence that we present for those 18. Here are the cases for the PS4. Here are the functional evidence for PS3. And here's the link to those cases in ClinVar and CentoMD, and here are the link to the publications that talk about the functional evidence. So um, our approach has been full transparency into how we, you um, came about that classification based on the evidence that we provide to you. So, no, we don't have AI today. Uh, Will we have AI in the future? Probably, Um, but uh, we're still waiting until the technology matures a little more before we bring that uh, to the level of uh, uh, clinical operations where patient lives are at stake.
0: Rupert, oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Kerns, do you want to add anything? I was
1: just going to say, ask a question of Rupert. What do you find the most difficult thing in handling with people like me?
2: Yeah, so, you know, what we found is um, when we when we talk to other customers like you about AI, uh, they found that number one is, is the transparency. But number two is um, a lot of the times they can't change some of the uh, rules that the AI algorithm uses. The other thing is that uh, not all uh, platforms that use AI uh, incorporate even society guidelines such as ACMG rules, ASCO CAP guidelines, or even the MCCN um, uh, recommendations on uh, uh, protocol. And so what ends up happening is that AI will use, um, uh, will come up with a recommendation that conflicts even with NCCN guidelines, which is crazy, um, and, and that's in the rare extreme where those uh, uh, AI algorithms completely ignore um, the the body of evidence and expertise of a society and just use um, data sets to to generate their their results. So I think. Um, this is what, at least, the feedback that um, we're getting from folks like you, Dr. Kearns, is that you know they want to know how you came up with that solution because you know ultimately <laughs> the referring physician is going to ask you, well, why did you come up with uh, likely pathogenic versus pathogenic? And you need to be able to come up with that answer. And AI uh, oftentimes doesn't give you that answer.
0: Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Kearns. Um, Rupert, uh, does the platform show users the variant classifications and genotype-phenotype correlations of other users?
2: Not today. This is something that we uh, are working with our customers uh, to do uh, to make this information more valuable. Um, Folks have found the access to allele frequencies immensely valuable. Uh, For example, there have been many cases where Uh, we've been able to identify allele frequencies that are not found in uh, exact or Nomad, um, and specifically for uh, certain ethnicities as well. And they're now asking questions like this question, which is, you know, can you also reveal other people's genotype and phenotype and classification information? And we're working hard with our um, uh, sort of pool of users uh, to ensure that uh, what we're proposing and the way that we're going to expose this information is respectful of patient privacy and um, the the privacy laws of the various regions around the world.
1: It's a a very important component of of the future. Mm -hmm. And I I have a question. I've got a question that nobody's asked, so I'm sure people have interest in it because we do, as you know, about... How does QCI deal with different languages and things like that for reporting and and, um, cloud access in different parts of the world, like China or Australia or whatever it may be?
2: Yeah, so we actually, uh, right now, the uh, underlying findings are done in English because our knowledge base is entered and standardized on English but the actual reporting itself, uh, we've actually customized into, um, I believe, t- over 20 different languages, localizing them to 20 different languages right now. Uh, and in China, we're, we're starting to move into that market now, and we're starting to develop uh, reports that are written in Chinese, but we've got reports in French, Spanish, German, um, and a couple of other major languages. Just the reporting part, but the, the workflow, the interpretation part uh, is still uh, in English for now.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Rupert, does QCI incorporate professional guidelines in its interpretation?
2: Yes, it does. Um, we do incorporate, you know, as I mentioned the ACMG uh, and the AMP, ASCO CAP uh, actionability guidelines. Uh, the uniqueness of um, our um, incorporation of these guidelines is one we don't precompute, and the reason why we don't pre-compute is because we allow the users the flexibility to Um, tweak some of these things. And and what I mean by that is um, if we present an evidence, like a PS4 evidence or a PS3 for functional data, and the reviewer clicks onto that link and reads that paper and goes, you know, the way they designed that study wasn't really that well designed. I'm not going to put ‑‑ I'm not going to ‑‑ I would tend to ignore this paper. And the user can then say, I'm going to ignore that paper or reject that paper. And then once they do that, then we recompute and see what happens with the final classification. And so, because we have access to this information um, and to this knowledge through our manual curation, we're able to then uh, really leverage uh, all 28 criteria of the ACMG classification. Um, Folks that don't have access to real-world data, real-world clinical cases, then uh, certainly some uh, criteria will never be triggered, but it's because of our the power of our knowledge base that we're able to uh, leverage all 28 criteria of the ACMG guidelines. Similarly, with the um, uh, amp ASCO CAP guidelines, uh, our curators don't just curate publications; we curate um, you know government documents such as you know clinical trials, the European clinical trials, uh, and we bring that information you know. Trials are always wrapping up or just starting or changing the uh, inclusion or exclusion criteria. We track all of that so that when we say that your patient is eligible for a trial, it's likely that that information is up to date and and correct. So all of that information uh, helps support the NCCN guidelines and AMP asco cap actionability guidelines as well.
0: And Rupert, uh, is there a specific way a user can enter clinical information? Is it um, OMIM or MeSH terms or another way?
2: Yeah, so uh, we support HPO terms. We we support um, free text. And our free text then um, queries our uh, ontology to identify synonymous terms so that we can present you with controlled vocabulary that is then fed into um, the classification scheme but yes we support HPO Omen mesh and a bunch of others
0: great Um, we don't have any more questions in the queue uh, but dr. Kearns if you have any other questions for dr. Yip we do have a few minutes left not to put you on the spot
1: or not to put him on the spot. I, right. I, ask for, I I always ask for all kinds of things in the background that eventually wind up on his desk, and I'm sure he kind of rolls his and says, right, thinking, oh, no, he's asking for what? Um, I I can't think of anything. I really can I mean, I'm very, very happy with this whole bioinformatics pipeline, and I, I just want to emphasize how um, amenable they are to questions, service, technical support and everything. I'm, I'm, I'm a very happy person.
0: Great, then we'll oh, end you. it right there. Thank you for, Thank you both very much. Um, we'd like to thank William Kerms, uh, Rupert Yip, and our sponsor, Kiagen. Um As a reminder, please look out for the pop-up survey after you log out to provide your feedback. If you missed any part of this webinar or wish to listen to it again, a link to an archived version will be emailed to all attendees. Thank you for joining us for this genome webinar. Kyogen Sample to insight.